This morning as we continue our series in the early chapters of Genesis, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. The text is printed for you in the back of your order of worship if you'd like to follow along there as we go. Our text this morning is the account of what took place after Noah and his family and the animals left the ark and God established his covenant with them. This is the last that we read of the life of Noah in the scriptures. It is how his story ends. This passage, if you're not familiar with it, is without question a strange story. Even in the book, in the context of the Bible, which is full of a lot of somewhat strange stories at times. But it is also, I think, a fascinating story, a rich and meaningful story. And it has much to teach us today, as I think we'll see this morning. I invite you to listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. God's word is sweeter than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from the wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Almighty God, you've caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Now, by your Spirit, may you 
give us the grace to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this portion of your word, that we might hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The first thing to notice about our text this morning, about this story, is that this narrative, this story, is very clearly a kind of fall narrative. It's a recapitulation in many ways of what takes place in Genesis 3. Remember, Noah is now the new head of the human race, the new Adam, so to speak, from whom all the human race will be descended. And God has graciously given explicitly the whole world to Noah, just as he did to Adam when Noah came out of the ark. He has instructed Noah to rule over the animals, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And now Noah, as the new Adam, plants a garden, a vineyard that should recall for us the garden of Eden, but in a way that is like what took place in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Noah becomes also a place of sin and transgression and a kind of new fall. After planting the vineyard, Genesis tells us that Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, this is undoubtedly the first thing that goes wrong in this passage. Noah plants a vineyard. He grows grapes over a period of time. He then ferments the grapes. I mean, this is the product of a lot of work over time. He eventually makes wine. But when he drinks of the wine, perhaps the first time that he tastes the wine, he overindulges to the extent that he becomes drunk and lays down unclothed in his tent. Presumably, he falls asleep in that state because of the influence of wine. Now, the scriptures, of course, don't forbid the making of wine or the drinking of alcohol. As Psalm 104 puts it, our Old Testament reading last week, God gave wine to man to gladden the heart of man. Wine is a gift of God for the human race. He did it on purpose to make us glad. But the Bible does forbid on a number of occasions becoming drunk on wine or other forms of alcohol. I don't think there's any responsible way to read this text without seeing Noah's actions here as sinful, as wrong, as a transgression and a failure in his responsibility both as a father and also as the new Adam, as the head of the human race at this time. However, we also must note that Noah's sin is mitigated by his actions after he becomes drunk, and his sin, I think, is certainly not the major sin, the major fall that takes place in this text. You see, the significant problem with drunkenness, according to to the Bible is that becoming drunk leads to us losing self-control, lowering inhibitions, uh, making us more prone 
to other more serious sins that we commit when we're under the influence, so to speak. Those who are drunk are more liable to fail, to keep their obligations to others, to do the things they need to do to ensure the safety and well-being of others around them. They are more likely to speak wickedly and sinfully in anger or under the influence of alcohol. We are more likely to commit sexual sins. We also become more likely to commit acts of abuse or violence or manslaughter. But notice what Noah does in his state of drunkenness. He goes into the privacy of his tent, into his bedroom, so to speak. He takes off his clothes and he goes to sleep. He limits the effects of his sin. But while Noah is asleep in the tent, a worse sin takes place. His son Ham enters Noah's tent and he looks on the nakedness of his father. And then he goes outside and tells his two brothers, Shem and Japheth, what he saw. What happens here in this verse is very significant. Ham's sin is the real fall, the major sin that takes place in this narrative. Remember that the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 is fundamentally a sin of rebellion against the authority of the father. And here, Ham's sin is a rebellion. It's a sin of rebellion against his earthly father that God had given to him. Ham, with intention, it appears, invades the privacy of his father's tent, the equivalent of his father's house and even his father's inner chamber, his bedroom. And he deliberately looks on his father, sleeping naked under the influence of wine. That's bad enough that he would do that. But then even worse, Ham, instead of covering his father's nakedness, either literally or simply by not mentioning it to others, instead of dealing respectfully with his father's weakness and sin, Ham goes outside and again with intention defames his father's reputation. He tells his brothers what he saw. Now the scriptures don't tell us explicitly what Ham's motives were in these actions. Was he simply being foolish and reckless in his actions? Or is something darker happening here? That's what I wonder. Is he seeking to lead his brothers into some kind of rebellion against their father because of what he has done? The text doesn't tell us explicitly. But either way, Ham's sin is significant, particularly because it is against his father. Not just any person, but his father in particular. And his brother's righteous response show us, by way of contrast, the wickedness of Ham's actions. Notice what Shem and Japheth do in response to Ham's words about their father. The narrative actually gives us a great deal of detail here, even repetitive detail, because it wants us to slow down and see what they do in response to the words of Ham. Verse 23, Then Shem and Ham took a garment. In the Hebrew, it's literally the garment. Laid it on both their shoulders, 
and walked backward. They walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. That is, they were turned away from their father as they approached him. And they did not see their father's nakedness. You see, with deliberate care and intention, Shem and Japheth respectfully show honor to their father in his naked and vulnerable state. They enter the tent walking backward, holding a garment between them, and they approach Noah in such a way that they do not even glimpse their father's nakedness. Instead, they discreetly, respectfully cover the nakedness of their father as faithful sons. Instead of taking advantage of their father's inebriation or shaming their father for what he has done, Shem and Japheth act as faithful sons, honoring their father by covering him. Notably, this story is not only about the sin of Ham, it is also just as much or more about the faithfulness, the righteousness of Shem and Japheth, how they demonstrate what it means to keep the fifth commandment. And that pattern plays out in the pattern of curses and blessings that come after Noah awakes from his sleep. Noah begins by cursing Canaan, the son of Ham. Instead of being given authority, the son of Ham, his authority will be taken away and he will be a servant of servants to his brothers. Now, one of the odd things about this text is that Ham himself is not cursed by Noah, but instead Ham's son seems to receive the punishment for Ham's sin. Now, why is that? Ultimately, the text doesn't answer that question explicitly. One possibility is that Canaan's character was like that of his father, Perhaps in some way he was actually part of the rebellion of Ham and Ham's sin. Another possibility is that this is simply another example of the scriptural principle that we see again and again of how the sins of the father are visited on the sons of the father. Ham sought to elevate his position and indeed his son and instead his son was brought down low. This certainly is something for us to be aware of as parents, the ways in which our sins affect our children in fundamental ways. But again, notice the emphasis in the text is not so much on the curse given to Canaan as it is on the blessings given to Shem and Japheth. Noah blesses his faithful sons. He doesn't only curse the son of Ham, he blesses Shem and Japheth. He says, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So even as Noah is bringing down Ham and his son, he is lifting up Shem and Japheth. And then with a summary statement, the story of Noah ends. His death is noted. His time on the page is finished. His last recorded act is interesting. It's that of blessing his faithful sons 
for how they honored their father by covering his nakedness. So how do we apply this story? What does this text mean for us today? Now, of course, we could make some applications, I think, regarding the dangers of alcohol and drunkenness, particularly for those who hold authority over others. And certainly this story points to those things. Alcohol is a gift to be enjoyed, but particularly for those who are responsible for others, for parents, for leaders, etc. Alcohol is something to be enjoyed very carefully, wisely, with moderation. But fundamentally, this picture, this story rather, I think is a dramatic picture of the significance and the meaning of what is commonly referred to as the fifth commandment. The commandment which reads, as we heard in Deuteronomy this morning, Honor your father and mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, as Yahweh your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Now, I think it's possible that in the landscape of all the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment might be taken somewhat less seriously than the others, right? We can easily acknowledge that things like murder and theft and adultery and idol worship and lying, those are wicked things, right? But honoring our father and mother, is that really an ironclad commandment of God? Isn't that just a kind of good thing to do? I mean, aren't there exceptions? Right? Aren't there disclaimers? I mean, has God met my father or my mother? What if your father or mother just isn't that righteous or kind or reasonable? What then? Our relationship to this commandment, I think, gets even more complicated and we consider its full implications. The larger catechism of our church states that the fifth commandment is not only about honoring our literal, biological father and mother, but also that we must honor, quote, all superiors in age or gifts, in age and gifts, and especially such as, by God's ordinance, are over us in a place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth, what we would commonly refer to today as government. In other words, our church teaches that the fifth commandment requires that we honor all those who are in authority over us, particularly those who are over us in the family or in the church or in the government. Now, why is the fifth commandment so important? Why does it make the list, right? Like, why is there ten commandments and not just nine? Why does it matter so much to God? that we honor our father and mother as we see in this story and as we see in the inclusion of that commandment in the ten. I think a large part of the answer to that question is that keeping the fifth commandment, honoring our father and our mother and all those who are over us, no matter the realm, is a way in which we take seriously God's sovereignty and God's authority in our lives. Honoring our father and mother is connected to honoring 
the authority of God. You see, generally speaking, we do not choose those who are in authority over us. We certainly, as the common saying puts it, don't choose our parents, right? Nobody chooses their parents. So who does? God chooses our parents for us. We don't typically choose whoever is an authority over us in our place of work. But if we take God's sovereignty seriously, we have to acknowledge that God chose to put that person in that position and relationship to us. The same is true, of course, for our dealings in the, the government. We may, in the republic in which we live, have some small influence over who our political leaders end up being. But ultimately, God is the one who has placed those persons in the position of authority that they hold. And so ultimately, honoring those who are authority over us is a way of submitting to God's authority. God's right to sovereignly place persons in positions over us, even persons whom we might personally believe to be unworthy of that place and that status that God has given them. To honor your father and mother, friend, is ultimately to honor God. To honor God particularly in his sovereign rule over the world. To honor God's wisdom. To honor his right to determine the particulars, the circumstances of our lives. So what does it mean to do that? If honoring our father and mother is important, what does it mean to obey this commandment? I think this text actually shows us some really fascinating things about what the fifth commandment means, particularly when it comes to the question of what it means to honor someone, an authority over us, who has weakness, who is in a place of vulnerability because of their failure in what they're called to do. As we've discussed, this passage begins with the failure of Noah, the father. It was not right for him to get drunk as he did. But Noah, like all of us, was a mortal man, a sinner. And in that moment, in his weakness, he failed in his responsibility. Now, Ham's behavior is a demonstration of what it means to break the fifth commandment in this situation. He invades his father's tent. He looks, looks on his shame and his nakedness, and he shares what he has seen with his brothers. Instead of honoring his father, Ham dishonors him. Instead of responding to his father's failure with care and gentleness and respect, Ham accentuates and even exposes his father's shame to others. In contrast, Shem and Japheth show us in this passage what it means to faithfully keep the fifth commandment. And it's important to remember that the fifth commandment, like the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, is phrased by God as a positive command, right? It's not, thou shalt not dishonor thy father and mother. No, we're told as a positive command that we must positively do this. We must honor our father and mother just as we are to keep the Sabbath day holy. And Shem and Japheth show us what this looks like. 
particularly what it means to honor a parent in a place of weakness. When Shem and Japheth hear of their father's failure, they refuse to join Ham in looking on his nakedness. Instead, with great intentionality and care, they walk backwards with a cloak between them that they might cover their father's shame without even seeing it in the first place. And in this, they are blessed. They are honoring their father as God requires them to. I think what Shem and Japheth do here is a a beautiful and really kind of profound picture of what it means to faithfully, positively keep the fifth commandment in our lives. It's worth meditating on, this picture of what they're doing here. I mean, think about how gentle and careful and respectful and thoughtful they are to their father, even in the midst of his weakness and his failure. I mean, think of those sons, right? Grown sons, by the way, very grown, hundreds of years old probably, walking backwards slowly, carefully, placing a robe over their shoulders, holding it between them, stretching it out, that they might restore their father's honor instead of stripping it away. Now, all of us have parents All of us have persons in authority over us who fail us. It's part of the deal, right? All of us have parents who fail us. All of us have leaders who fail us in different ways, who fall short of the mark. But how do we deal with them in that place of failure, a place of weakness, Do we deal with them with care and respect, seeking to gently even and intentionally cover them in their shame? Or do we expose and exploit their weaknesses? Now, just to be clear, there are times when we must expose the sin of those parents or the sin of those who are in authority over us. And doing so is not a violation of the fifth commandment. There are circumstances like that. For example, if a parent or any authority figure is abusing their power, using their authority to harm or abuse or violate those who are under them, we shouldn't cover that, right? We must expose that kind of sin despite any harm it might do to their reputation. But that's not the situation in our passage this morning, right? Noah's sin is a sin of weakness, the sin of human frailty. He's not abusing others. He's sleeping in his tent because he's incapacitated. And so Shem and Japheth are right to cover their father's shame and to show him respect. I mean, it's so respectful what they do. Even in their father and his failure and his nakedness, they show him respect even in a moment when he has, in a sense, let them down and failed them in his role as their father. I think that's fascinating. And they are commended and blessed for it. They become examples to us. In some ways, this story is more about Shem and Japheth than it is about either Noah or Ham. I think they honor their father here in a way that is beautiful in a way that is worthy of our emulation. As we close this morning, 
I just want to say that in my years of serving you all as your pastor, I've had the privilege of watching things like what Shem and Japheth do in this passage. I've, I've seen remarkable examples of you demonstrating to me what it means to honor your father and your mother. Particularly, I've seen a number of examples in this congregation of what it means to honor your father or your mother in their advanced age, in their weakness. What I'm saying is that I've watched again and again and again as men and women in our congregations, you sitting in the seats this morning, have patiently and kindly and respectfully and gently cared for and served your parents in their declining years, all the ways up to their deaths. I've watched you do this. I've seen you do it. At cost to yourselves, honoring your father and your mother in difficult and trying situations, doing it without complaint, doing it joyfully and humbly, seeing it as a privilege, which it is. And I want you to know that as I've seen these things, it has been significant to me. I think it's one of the most important things that I've witnessed in our church in the almost nine years I've been pastor here. As you've honored your father and your mother, you have shown forth a profound picture of the gospel and the faithfulness of God. Beloved, remember, as we seek to keep this commandment, that it is, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, the first commandment with a promise. A promise that God attaches to it. And to be clear, the promise that is given in Deuteronomy isn't just about long life or receiving land in the earthly sense, in this life, in this, as the earth as it is now. This is a promise, I think, that refers to the resurrection that is given here. And as we keep this commandment, even in hard situations, even with parents and authority figures who fail us, I'm convinced that God will do this, that he will keep his promise to us. Listen again to both the command and the promise. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.